Well, thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. It is the 24th of October, 2010, and I'm back, baby. We came back Thursday from Libertopia, 2010, and um, wanted to thank everybody, everybody, who's uh, donated and supported and spread the word and done all those kinds of good things, who've had conversations, and anybody, let's throw the net wide, anybody who's ever listened and changed anything because of that. Uh, because of this show. Uh, it is that kind of stuff which gets the money for us to go down to Libertopia. This is not something that I was paid for, but it's okay. Hey, you have to play clubs before you can play stadiums, and that's uh, that's the way the uh, the ball bounces up the stairs. So I had a great time at Libertopia. It was really great to meet everybody. It was an actual anarchist gathering, not libertarian, not minarchist. Uh, it was an actual anarchist gathering, the first one in probably, well, certainly a large number of decades. And that was very encouraging. It was very exciting. And uh, I hope that you will be able to meet, uh, to make it to the next one. And uh, it was great to do the speech. I really had a lot of fun. I took some risks. I did a little bit of stand-up at the beginning of the speech uh, to, to warm up the crowd, which was fairly cheesy, but I think fairly well received about my, um, my trip down from Canada, which uh, I guess you'll hear when the speech comes out. And uh, it was great to see the other speakers, lots of great information. I will say, though, that I think that the people who weren't academics gave generally more engaging speeches, which is kind of what you'd expect, right? Academics kind of have a guaranteed uh, audience and uh, do not have to win people over with the simple entertaining force of their rhetoric. And so I think that uh, certainly the feedback that I got was that the non-academics gave better speeches. And so I would throw that gauntlet down to the academics uh, to, <laughs> to find ways of doing more than sort of either read the PowerPoint or uh, just um, uh, make speeches that make people feel like they're back in college, which is not, at least from what people were talking to me about, not the best thing in the world to experience. But um, it, was, uh, it was a great time. Uh, Izzy had a lot of fun. The weather, the weather was staggeringly bad. <laughs> I mean, just it's staggering. It's the worst weather I think I've ever been away. It was just a nice cold, chilly drizzle of mist and fog and goo <laughs> the whole time. And there was nothing around the hotel. We were out by Universal Studios uh, and um, we didn't end up taking Isabella there. It's like 150 bucks to get in and uh, it's uh, <laughs> I don't think she would enjoy much. But there was a little, um, not exactly a comic book convention, but like a, um, a pop culture convention that was going on at the same time and some sort of science fiction convention, at least judging by the number of people in Star Trek uniforms and uh, Izzy found a man in a giant green turtle suit and towed him all over the hotel, showing him things and demanding uh, or asking that he fall down because he did fall down once. And uh, she really was quite excited by that and wanted him to do it um, repeatedly. And <laughs> who can blame her for that? He was a most engaging, friendly and entertaining fellow. So she had a lot of fun uh, doing that. And uh, there is a little sort of place like Universal walk which is free which we went to where there were you know toy stores and stuff like that so she had a great time there and she slept fairly well on vacation which was good although it is it is just exhausting in general because of the time change uh she was getting up like 5 a.m kind of thing and so that was uh that was a little rough and i was pretty tired the whole time except for one afternoon after i had a three-hour nap <laughs> and and my speech went well um uh, my speech went as as i wanted it to uh, I think I hit the right notes. I think that I got the right message across. And so, and then I did an, a, another speech on Sunday for a luncheon, which I'm also pleased with. So 
so thank you everybody so much for helping me to get down there and I hope that I do you proud when I do these talks and if there's anything that you think I can do better I absolutely will. I also wanted to apologize for uh, putting out the flippant comment in a recent podcast on fear about Dr. Atkins. Uh, I'm sorry that I passed along some half-digested scrap of information without any verification. It's a little challenging uh, looking things up when I'm driving in the car, but I shouldn't have tossed it out uh, talking about uh, his obesity at death. Uh, I have been uh, corrected by people who know more about it than I did that he was uh, not particularly overweight. Uh, he did not die of obesity. He died from falling and slipping. He was not particularly overweight, but he gained some staggering amount of weight uh, in hospital when he was admitted unconscious before he died, and it had nothing to do with the diet as far as I understand. So I'm sorry that um, uh, that I put that out there, and thank you so much for the correction. If anybody wants to or remembers where it is in the podcast, uh, please send a, the, the time code to me and I will snip it out. It was not, um, uh, it was not necessary uh, for my argument and I don't want to distract people and I certainly don't want to put information out there that is uh, incorrect about something that important. So uh, I will uh, uh, be happy to, to correct that. And uh, if nobody does send that to me, I don't think I'll have time to go and look it up. But Consider this my correction, and thank you to everybody who um, who put that in. All right. Uh, yes, sorry, uh, podcasts have not been uploaded uh, for a while. I think things have gone out a little bit more recently than that. Let me just check the last time the podcast went out. Yeah, the um, Ernie Hancock show was the last one that went up. Uh, I'm sorry, I've, I've been away for over a week, and um, I do have a version of my Philadelphia speech, which I was also quite pleased with uh, to to go. I will put that up later this afternoon. And I did uh, record a short podcast when I was in California. And uh, just a reminder, a reminder that I am going to be a speaker on a Liberty Cruise, which is going on, I guess, a little over a year from now. But for, hey, forward planning is important. Uh, it's going to be in November 2011. If um, uh, I will create a link, fdrurl.com forward slash cruise. And um, uh, hopefully you can join. It's a cruise to the Barbados. It's very cheap. And um, I hope that you're able to join. Uh, Christina and Izzy and I will be there. Uh, we'll be speaking and chatting and rolling around and circulating. And uh, <laughs> I hope that you will be able uh, to, to join us. And I think that's it for the news and the weather. I do have a couple of podcasts in the can. I did record yesterday my emails of the week, which I will uh, post as well this afternoon. And that's it. Thank you for your patience. Uh, it is, um, it's a massive, massive, massive amount of work to, to prepare even an hour-long speech. Uh, so many practices, so many different ways of rearranging it. And uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's like a 20 to 1 as far as podcast time goes. So one speech is like consumes 20 possible podcasts, but I think it's... Uh, I think it's worthwhile. Also wanted to mention that the uh, high quality multi-camera <laughs> multimedia extravaganza version of my Porkfest speech is up on YouTube and I hope that you will check it out. The sound is great. Um, and uh, I was looking at it last night and I was like, yeah, that's a, that's a good speech too. So uh, I'm, I'm pleased with that as well. Well, that's it for me, and uh, I am now laying myself bare wide and open to 
your questions. Hello, Seth. Hello. You need to stand have... back from your mic a little bit. You're breathing quite heavily into it. Oh, okay. How's this? That's much better. Thanks. Okay. I have a lot of trouble getting jobs. Um, I, I didn't have much trouble when I was uh, like a teenager. Like I got a job at a fast food place and at an office, and it, it wasn't that much trouble. But uh, my father uh, forced me into the military, right? Yes. And uh, so I, I was in the military for five years. Uh, that's how long my what they call a contract was. Uh, and then after I got out of the mil out of the military, I went back home, right, and lived with my parents. And I had a lot of trouble getting a job then. It, it, like my my father pressured me to get a job, so I got one at like a Starbucks there. And then like uh, the military will move your stuff, right, uh, for up to like six months after you get out. Like they, they keep your stuff in storage. So, like, at the end of the six months, like, the last few days of it, I uh, found a college in a different state and moved to it, and uh, I, I, I was in college for a few years after that, right? And then, like, I, I started to listen to your, to your podcast toward the, en the end of those couple years, and uh, I left uh, my family and college in, like, short succession there, but ever since then, I've had a lot of trouble. I've, like, uh, I've, I, I'll... I'll I, Sorry, I won't be looking for jobs until like my money and my credit runs out, and then uh, right when it's about to run out, I'll get a job, right? And um, that seems to be getting worse. Like the last time I got a job, it was almost like I was I was planning on being homeless because I I wasn't even even able to get motivation at at the last minute. But like um, I started a relationship uh, about that time, and uh, I I don't know that had something to do with my motivation, and and I went and. Uh, I, I got a job then, but now it's the same thing. I, I've quit my job. I've moved to a city, and, you know, I, I'd like to, since I'm in a city instead of a college town, I can get something more than a minimum wage job, but I'm not even able to get a minimum wage job, let alone one of those, and I'm having the same sort of troubles as I've had before, and I was wondering if you could help me to figure out uh, where the problem might be. I, I have some idea, but, uh, and how I might go about, like, getting a job so that I can get into therapy and uh, start solving Start, start gaining self-knowledge and stuff like that uh, related to this. Sure, I understand. Can you tell me a little bit about what you think the issues are? Uh, I, I noticed that before I went into the military, it was uh, it was not too hard to get a job. I, I don't know if it's because my father wanted me to get a job then too, but it, 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 I don't know. It, it didn't seem like I had a lack of motivation then. But afterwards, every, every time it seems like I have a huge lack of motivation. So well, that's I, a description. Sorry, that's a description of the symptoms. What do you think the cause is? I I know that uh, one of the things that like I'll, I'll quit jobs for like it seems like there's been two consistent reasons. One is that I uh, e either uh, there's a bully there, right? Like my boss is a bully or something like that, so I leave the job. Or uh, like it is it it goes well for a while. It's like kind of lax kind of rules, I guess you could call it, and then they they start getting uh, more and more strict or something like somebody else who works in like not even the store that I'm at or whatever, but in a different store, like the, the managers there don't run it well. And like uh, they have stuff stolen and stuff like that. So they crack down on all their stores and like start instituting all these rules and stuff. And it gets, it's, it kind of reminds me of how it was in the military and in, in uh, school, public school even. And uh, I think, I think, uh, I think that's what I, a, a huge problem I have getting a job is that it the rules 
are usually like that in jobs, I guess. Uh, that, that's what I'd say. I, I might be wrong. So you think it's a reaction to, to bullying? Uh, to bullying and to like uh, strict rules or something like that. Like, uh, like it seems like petty rules almost. Like uh, instead of letting you do your job in a way that works for you, like they, they, it's like micromanagement or something like that. Right, right, right. Now, do you think that's affecting you uh, in terms of before you get the uh, the job? I, I like know, you say, you're not. You're, do you think it's affecting you in the interview process? Well, I, I know I know that it affects me a- after I've been in the job for a while, but I I don't know whether whether it does. I I'm, I have like like I get this frustration when I go to write up a resume. I I get a frustration when I'm looking for high paying jobs. And I get frustration even when I'm looking for minimum wage jobs, and I'm, I'm, I've never really made any progress on figuring out why. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, I mean, you're not giving me a huge amount to work on, um, which is a challenge, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible. It just means that it's, it's a challenge. Um, let me ask you this. Why do you want a job? I'd like, uh, well, I, I've been thinking about that recently, and I, I, if I get a decent paying job, if I, if I get a job, like, uh, I'll be, like, I'm running late on rent and stuff like that, and that, that's become, like, a huge problem. So I would be able to actually pay that even with a minimum wage job, but I'd like to get, like, a decent paying job, like an office job or a programming job or something like that, so that, uh, I can afford, like, therapy every week or something like that. And it, I, I know my life would, the quality of my life would improve significantly if I got a decent paying job. Okay, so it's not the job itself that has any interest for you, is that right? Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm thinking that I could get a job that interests me, but I, I guess, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Uh, I might need help answering that, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, if, if the work itself is a have-to, then that's going to be a problem, right? I mean, if it's just, look, I hate going there, but I need to eat, then there's not going to be any kind of joy or, or fun or pleasure in it. It's just going to be ha- – it's like going to the dentist. Nobody's like, yay. I mean, very few people, I guess, maybe a masochist or two, but very few people want to go to the dentist, right? Well, yeah, but I, I know the last job I was in, I was a cart pusher, which is not much of a job, but I, I kind of – I, I got enthusiastic about it because I could, it, it, I was able to do it, like they left me alone to do it however I wanted. And I, I spent a lot of time like uh, changing the way I work to make it more efficient and stuff like that. I, I really liked doing that. Not that I'd want to be in a cart, as, a, as a cart pusher forever. I'd like to get a better job than that. But it, but uh, it seems like whenever, like the job starts going downhill when I can't do it however I want as long as it works, you know? It, it's like they start micromanaging or something like that. That seems to be a really, it really demotivates me if, if that helps. Sure, no, I understand. Now, have you looked into possibilities of work where you don't have a boss? I, I have, but I have the same sort of uh, resistance or frustra- frustrated feeling in my head or whatever when I contemplate that. And it's, it seems to be even worse than uh, when I go look at regular jobs you know it's like i don't even know where to begin and i can't figure out what i need to figure out to even begin to yeah start. i mean look you can do stuff i mean you can do some stuff where you work at home i mean i'm no expert in it right i guess i work from home or whatever right but there are a number of people who are listeners who who do um writing for people um and you still have to deal with customers over there so there's always a boss right <laughs> i mean there's no uh, there's no completely independent thing uh, other than going to live on a desert island i guess but 
I mean, I have I have a boss, and you you are my boss, right? I mean, the listeners are the boss, right? Uh, and that is, uh, I'm subject to their uh, their authority, uh, and so that is a challenge for me. So there's no such thing as escaping authority in this world. Uh, everybody has a boss. My my dentist is the boss of my teeth. This, my doctor is the boss of my health, and uh, and I'm married. So, 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 and, and Isabella is my boss, so to speak, because she has needs that can't be deferred or postponed. Uh, and, uh, uh, so, so that, that there's no escaping from impositions. There's no escaping from authority, right? So when we were coming back from Los Angeles last week, uh, Isabella, uh, wouldn't go down. She, she just wants to be in my arms the whole time. Uh, and, uh, so for like an hour and a half, as we were going through, uh, customs and we were going through security and we were walking around the airport, she would not go down. <laughs> so I try and put her down and she clamps, you know, like, like a howler monkey on a banana. Uh, she clamps onto my waist and my legs with her legs and she just, she won't go down. And listen, that gets tiring. I mean, that is some tiring oh. stuff. So, I mean, that's just a minor example that there is always an external, there's always in life, there are external impositions that you'd rather not be there. I would rather she'd have gone down for a little while. But she didn't. And so that's, you know, I'd rather not have to go through security. I'd rather not have to do all this customs nonsense. I'd rather, I mean, just rather not. And there are always these impositions in life. And um, uh, so, so there's, there's no escape from it, at least as far as I know. There's no, uh, there's no escape from it. So I think the first thing to do is to accept that that's a reality. Because if you have in your head that it shouldn't be this way when it mm -hmm. is this way, that, that is a really not good attitude to have. And sorry, a bad attitude just sounds like such a, you have a bad attitude. I don't mean it like that. I don't mean it like that. It's like, you know, it's like, uh, um, it's like getting mad at aging or something. Um, oh, yeah. It, it, you know, it's, it's just going to happen, you know, or, or getting mad if your, your girlfriend has a period. It's like, hey, it's going to happen. And I, I think that it's really important to make sure that you're looking at these impositions in perspective, in the perspective of life itself as a whole. Okay. Right. So, you know, it wasn't fun when I started losing my hair, but it's like, hey, that's what happens. And I've got no complaints about physical health and no complaints about all of that. So, uh, so it's just something that happens. So I think it's important to recognize that just about anywhere you go, you're going to have an external authority that you're going to have to answer to, who's going to have power over you. Even if you're self-employed and you're writing for a living from home, you have clients. Those clients will be jerks sometimes, and they won't pay you, and they will be demanding, and they will change specs on you, and the same thing will happen if you're a computer programmer. The same thing will happen if you're a salesman. The same thing will happen if you're a waiter. You get those people who order something and then say they didn't order it, or it's too hot, and then it's too cold. Then you have some boss who switches shifts on you, and like there's always going to be that situation. Now, that's not the same as the army, and it's not the same as being at home in a sort of tyrannical or abusive situation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important not, not to jam all these two things together and say that a boss who's not good is, uh, is, um, is the same as my drill sergeant is the same as my dad. They're not. They're not. And the reality is that there's a um, – getting to economic or financial security when you come from a dysfunctional or really underprivileged, let's say in every sense of the word, underprivileged household, mm -hmm. it's like being born underwater and having to break through thick ice 
to get to the land. And the thick ice that you have to break through is bad bosses. Because if you're a good boss, you're not in charge of entry-level people. I want to really sit, sit and understand this. This is very, very important. Because I talked about this with another guy a, a, a month or two ago. But, but it's really important to understand that if you're a really good boss, then you, you are going to be put in charge of high-functioning people. And, and high you – know, Bill Gates is not going to run a Burger King. Yeah. Right? And Steve Jobs is not going to run a Taco Bell. Because they're too good. They should be, they should be managing people who make a million dollars a year. If, if that, uh, Alan Greenspan, whatever you think of him as a, as a, a, a statist, uh, obviously did a good job of running the Fed in the eyes of the people because he was on the job for 13 years and so on. Right? So he's not going to run a, a, a little hardware store in a small town. Sure. So the bosses that you get when you're starting out are bad bosses. I mean, okay. you might get the miracle good boss who's like a really great boss on his way up and you just happen to have all started at the same time. Mm -hmm. But that's very – that never happened to me. Okay. Right? Yeah, I, I think yeah. that's, that's really important. I had a lot of bad bosses mm -hmm. in my day, a lot of bad bosses in my day. And that's just a reality of – and I think – I mean, maybe that'll be the case different in the future if we get the world that we need. But the reality now is that you're just going to hit bad bosses in your entry-level positions, and you have to outgrow them, and you have to move up beyond them to where you get great bosses. Okay. But the problem is, is you have to go through the bad bosses to, to get the great bosses, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And, I mean, I think that Nietzsche's right when he says, give a man a why, and he can bear almost any how. So if you enter into a job and you feel bullied and harassed like you did at home and like you did in the army, then you're going to – your motivation is just going to go futz, right? I completely understand that. But if you say, look, this is not the army. I'm choosing to be here. It's a means to an end. And the, the end is I'm going to outgrow these bosses and get to some better position. But there's no way to pole vault over these people. You have to go through. Like you have to break through the ice to get to the air. You have to go through the bad bosses to get to the better jobs. Okay. Uh, so I'll give you a, a, just another tiny example, right? I mean the amount of preparation and travel that we all had to do, like Christina and, and myself, that we all had to do for one 50-minute speech – in California was ridiculous. It was okay. ridiculous. We had like three suitcases full of stuff. And now we were staying an extra couple of days, which was not ex in hindsight the best decision in the world, but you can't predict the weather. But I mean, it was crazy. We had to like start packing like half a, a week before we left. We, we had to get up uh, early in the morning. We, we lost sleep for like a week. I mean, all of that for what? For one 50 minute speech, more or less? I mean, it's nutty. Mm -hmm. But it's a means to an end, right? which is keep doing speeches, uh, keep getting more exposure, bring the ideas to more and more people, right? That's the means to the end. But, you know, 90% of everything is is crap. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. true, right? I mean, yeah. I wouldn't say that's true of my marriage, but uh, and and but, but 90%, I mean, 90% of what I do at FDR is not having great podcasts and giving great speeches. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, 
fucking around with difficult hardware. It's it's answering endless emails. It's it's working to create. I'm working at the moment and creating an FAQ because I simply can't keep up with the emails. It's writing thank you notes, and I'm certainly appreciative of the thank you notes for the donations. But you know, it's not a huge amount of fun. But uh, it's not uh, it's not striding a stage, making people laugh, and and you know, <laughs> uh, punching philosophy holes in their big walls of, of defenses. That's not. Uh, what it's all about that happens but that's not what it's all about right i mean it took it took queen three weeks to record killer queen which is a three minute song so 95 percent of that was not spontaneously playing your instruments and having fun it was oh my god the tracks are out of sync oh my god well they spent three weeks on the guitar dubs just for that song right so now because of that what happens is we we then get to see people at their finest right so i mean i just use queen for whatever right so then we get to see a concert footage of queen and we're like damn that looks that's a you know their life is great because every time i see them they're playing music they're being interviewed they're laughing they're having fun but you don't see the 90 percent of you know kind of dull stuff that has to be there right sure i'm not convincing you about anything i can tell that so what am i missing here Oh, uh, well, I, I know my father, like it, it, this, this actually brought up something like my father, he was very, uh, whenever, like, like you, you, you said it better than I'm, I'm going to say it. Cause, and I can't remember how you put it, but it was like, whenever a service person or something like a cashier or something would like make him mad or something, he'd like go off on him. Right. He was very, um, sensitive or whatever. Maybe that's not the right word to, um, slights i guess you could say and i think i think i might be like i i remember when i was a kid i i would say something like uh i in my head like why why i mean this isn't that big a deal i mean we can go somewhere else or something like that you know i didn't say that to him obviously because he was very ready to go off the handle all the time but um it seems like i've started to do that or something like that and some in some way i think that might i think that might be some of what the problem is i'm not sure but i i think what you were saying was helping me it's help, it, i think it might be helping me to get back into that old mindset i'm not sure i i don't think so so remind me what you were saying about your dad that he was very sensitive and can you just give me that scenario again make sure i understand it like uh i remember going through like a toll booth with him as an adult like i was riding in the car with him and like um, I guess he had to ha- like the the little thing that you- I guess he didn't have change, so he had to give it to the the guy that worked there or something. And like I guess the guy took too long or something. And like my dad starts talking about how, uh, oh, I guess you like having power over people or something like that. I forget exactly how he put it, but it was something like that. And like he in in stores as a kid, he would like uh, get into a rage and stuff like that. I remember one time, like, somebody was turning in front of him, like, way ahead, and he, like, sped up to, like, uh, like, he, he was pretty insane. Like, he, he sped up to, like, scare the guy or whatever, right? Like, he was sociopathic or whatever. But, like, uh, I, I always, back then, I looked at it, and it was like, why, why, um, this doesn't make any sense. It's like, uh, why not uh, let it go and find some place that will serve you better or something, you know? Sorry. Right, right. I understand. Uh, that that came up. I don't know how relevant it is, uh, but it came to my mind. I think it's relevant. I think it's relevant. I think it's relevant. Now, sit sit back comfortably because I'm going to give you a bit of some speech. Okay. <laughs> so get comfortable. You might even want to mute. Um, okay. <laughs>
one of the grave difficulties with growth in society is is outgrowing our parents. Outgrowing our parents. There is a saying that I think is quite true that nothing has a greater impact on us than the unlived life of our parents. In other words, the things that they know they should have done but didn't do. And whether that's treating us better or fulfilling their own ambitions or being more open-hearted or being more generous or being more virtuous or being more courageous or anything like that. If our parents had standards that they inflicted on their children but did not live up to themselves, or if they had dreams that they failed to pursue and either succeed or fail at. You can't fail at your dreams if you pursue them, because if you don't achieve them, it wasn't right for you, it's not right circumstance, and at least you've tried. The only failure in life is not trying. It's a cliche, but it's very true. So outgrowing our parents creates a great anxiety. There is a ceiling on human potential called the unlived lives of those who came before us. Or, to put it more bluntly, hypocrisy is our barrier to growth. The hypocrisy of those who came before us. Because they don't want to see their own hypocrisy. So, if you outgrow being bullied... If you outgrow bullying as a whole, and I know you have a slightly bullying side, which is perfectly natural and inevitable, but if you outgrow bullying as a whole, that completely activates your inner dad. Because if you can outgrow bullying, either being bullied or being a bully, then what you're doing is you're proving in a very empirical and substantial way, you are proving to your father that it's possible to outgrow bullying. To recognize it, to say it's there, to deal with it when you have to, but to not have it be part of your life fundamentally. Now, if you show to your dad, whether you're in the relationship with him or not, it doesn't matter because it's in your head either way. If you show to your dad, if you outgrow bullying, let's say you were still in a relationship with your dad. If you were to outgrow bullying, not rise to it, be above it, be bigger than bullying, leave it behind, and gather all the success that comes to those who outgrow the ceilings of their parents, let's say, limitations. If you outgrew bullying... How would your dad react? Does your dad want you to outgrow bullying? Oh, no. He, he was all about how it was necessary. For necessary. And stuff like that. Fantastic. So at least he's conscious of it. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Okay. So if you were to prove to him that far greater success in life is available to people who aren't bullies, to people who aren't abusive, who aren't aggressive in that way, How would he feel? How would his life show up for him if you proved him wrong on this most essential matter? Oh, he'd be humiliated. He would be very angry as well. 
I I would be afraid of being attacked, I think. Go on. Um, like, I, I've seen... Okay, you from, need to move like, back to your, your microphone. When, when you breathe okay. through your nose, I'm getting a big rumble in my ear. Sorry, go on. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've, I, I know I've, I've talked to a lot of people online, like debates and stuff like that, and, like, they, they have a lot of trouble seeing things. And I know right before I... Or after I left them, like, my dad called me up or whatever, and I had a conversation with him, and, like, uh, I couldn't get anything through, you know? Like, he, I, I said I was afraid of him, and he was like, uh, no, you weren't, because you, you didn't do what I said, essentially. So, I, I don't know. Um, so, I, I don't think, it, I don't think, like, I don't think he'd be able to accept it. Okay, you need to not think about this stuff and analyze it, because this is in your gut. Okay. Right, so, if you were to show to your dad that he was completely wrong about bullying, what happens to his view of his life? How does he feel? Uh, sad, I, I think. Well, this is why you, you can't, I think, overcome it, is you're not in, in touch with this stuff. This is not a criticism, right? I'm, I'm just pointing it out. Because you, for your dad, bullying is a necessary part of having strength and competence in this world, right? Right. Because if you don't bully, you get taken advantage of, right? Or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, so he, for him, it's a virtue. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a utilitarian virtue, probably largely due to other people only responding to bullying, right? It's because the world is... Is, is cruel and resistant that you have to be a bully, right? So it's, in a sense, it's other people's fault, right? Okay. Wait, is that, that, that's sort of what I'm trying to get from your dad's perspective. I'm having a lot of trouble accessing that. I think. Okay, well, why, uh, why does your dad believe that bullying is, is good and necessary? Well, he's told me about his time growing up. Uh, like, when he was a kid, he, he like... What he, he told me a story like he went to like the, the toughest kid in the school or whatever, I guess. He, and he said he grew up in a bad neighborhood. So he grew he went to the toughest kid in the school and beat him up or whatever. And then he he was a mess with, I guess. Uh, I know his father uh, like was a like a drunk and he like was like absolutely like extremely abusive with uh, my father. So it's like he he learned like uh that abusiveness is power. Like th this is probably more theoretical, abstract stuff. But like he he learned that abusiveness was power, and like he he used that in like his social dealings as a kid. I know because he's told me about it. Like he I, was a bully with other kids because that's how you get respect, right? Yes, yes. Otherwise, you get picked on. You get uh, your lunch money taken away. You get humiliated. So you have to, you know, it's like when you go to prison, right? You you beat up the biggest guy in prison, and then you're okay for the next year. Or, 10 years or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. 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 And um, was, uh, was your father ever open to the possibility that may not be correct? I don't think he was. I, I never really talked to him about it. I, the most I, t like, I, I only really talked to him semi-genuinely as, and at our last conversation, which I told him I was afraid. And I never really went into, uh, how his philosophy might be incorrect. It kind of got sidetracked on religion and stuff like that. Right. 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 
Right. Okay. So um, he's never sort of said, you know, this is what I do. I have doubts about it. I don't know if it's the best. It's the only thing that I know how to do, but I don't know if it's the best thing to do. Like, I don't know if you really should go and just beat up on the biggest kid in school to get respect. I mean, I don't know if that's the right approach. I don't know if, I just don't. Like, so he didn't have any doubt about it, if I understand what you're saying. Well, what, one thing that he did was he uh, got drunk at one of my uncle's parties one time. Like, he, he didn't usually get, like, very drunk, but this time he did. And he, he uh, really, I guess, humiliated himself. And, like, after that, he said he wasn't going to uh, beat me anymore, I guess. Well, I guess. He, he said he wasn't going to beat me anymore, which lasted for, like, about five years, actually. So I, I think he, he did have uh, reservations about it, but uh, he was never able to overcome them. And he was very resistant to any kind of uh, empathy with me as far as my fear. Right, right. Okay. Right. So if you believe that bullying and aggression is the way to go, then you kind of have to put yourself in bullying and aggressive situations like the military, right? Because that does work in the military mm-hmm. or at least in the government military, right? right? So if you were to outgrow bullying in terms of your susceptibility to it and to, to doing it, mm-hmm. then in your father's eyes, which you always carry with you, in your father's eyes, it would be revealing that his bullying was not a necessary virtue, but a cowardly vice. Mm-hmm. And how would he react to that? Probably with rage. I, 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 I know okay, you said dude, earlier dude, about the dude, gut, but dude, I'm having dude, a lot of... Dude, stop. You've got okay. to stop with these probablys. Okay. I mean, you either know or you don't. Because if we're having a theoretical conversation about someone you don't know, we can't have the conversation. You know your dad. You lived with him for decades. You would have some idea of how he would react. Every time you say anything, it's probably and maybe and this and that, right? Okay. I'm not trying to force you to say one thing or the other. Sure. But you're talking about, like, somebody you don't know. Right. I see that. So if I were to stand in front of your dad and say your bullying was not as necessary vice, was not a necessary virtue, it was not strength, but cowardly weakness, how would he react? He'd probably assault you. And what did you just say? I'm sorry, I, I probably. How would he react emotionally? Not what would he do, how would he react emotionally? With rage. And and why would he react with rage? I'm having a block here. I think I might need a minute. No. He hates it when people, like, when people contradict him. He he wants he he like uses force to um, like he's not into debating he'll use that but it's ultimately about force yeah threats and, and intimidation and all that right yeah like he can meld reality or uh, that's not the right word he can change reality based on what he says mm-hmm. and what he forces other people to do. Right. Or you can change social reality, at least. Right. 
Right. So he's got this cause and effect, which is something like this. I need to bully because people don't listen. I need to bully because people disagree with me and they're wrong. Right. And this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It really does become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this is what I'm most concerned about with you. With you. Mm-hmm. It's too late for your dad, but you, you have a chance. If you stay in the world of bullying, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because you say, well, I have to bully because people are this way. Right. But then what happens is you found your self-esteem and your sense of power on intimidating people. And you based your sense of self and sense of security also on being intimidated, uh-huh. which is what you're on the edge of wanting to change, right? Right. But what that means is you can't ever get away from bullies and cowards. You can't ever get away from them. In the same way that if you go and live in China and there's a group of 100 people around who speak English in your apartment building – and you never learn Chinese, you will never be able to socialize with anyone outside of those hundred people because you don't speak Chinese or Mandarin or whatever, right? Right. So if you speak the language called bullying and fear of bullying and intimidation and so on, that is a language that you speak and you will only ever be able to live in the world where people speak that language. You will never, after a while, be able to step outside that world, outside the world of hierarchies and bullies and conformity and cowardice and retaliation and frustration and anger and thwartedness, right? If that's the language that you were taught and that's the language you keep speaking, you will never be able to break out of it. Eventually, you simply can't speak any other language. And what happens then is if you are a bully or if you're if you have not processed being bullied, then in a sign of the box of fashion, you will continue to have to live in a bullying world, in a bullying hierarchy where you can't negotiate. You either intimidate other people and get them to conform to your irrationality or other people intimidate you and you conform to their irrationality. But there is no negotiation. There is no confrontation of the irrationality. A bully is always completely terrified of bullets becoming invisible of shooting at someone and realizing that he has no power, that he's only shooting blanks. Bullies, I mean, other than people who kidnap you and lock you in a van or whatever, but people who are just verbally aggressive, they're just shooting blanks. You have to pretend that they're hitting you. They're just shooting blanks. You're the one who has to say, ah, you got me, and pretend to be hit. I see. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. Right. So when somebody try, when, that's why a bully will never try and bully somebody who's not afraid, because they then realize how powerless they are, and then they realize that they're stuck in a world that is not the whole world. It's just their sad, crappy little dungeon part of the world where they have to hang around with other broken and malignant people and all pretend that that's just the whole world. Right. It's not the whole world. It's just their sad, broken down little corner of it. I see. And so when you overcome bullying, you are revealing to people who are bullies the sad little self-fulfilling limitations of their own little prisons, and they hate you for it. 
because they think that what has made them strong, sorry, they think that bullying has made them strong and bullying has simply trapped them in this dungeon-like little underworld of bomb-in-the-brain hierarchies. It has not fed them. It has eaten them. Now, how does this help you in a job interview? Well, I don't know. I don't know. But I do think that you need to come over this bullying thing and say, look, do I want to live in this dungeon forever? And what is the price of me escaping being bullied? I don't mean by not being around. I mean, there are always going to be people. But they sense in you. Bullies will sense in you. If you're susceptible to it or not. I mean, you've seen this happen a million times, even in this show, right? Yes. People are all kinds of tough talking on the board, and I say, hey, call in on the Sunday show. I'd love to hear. Let's have this debate. They vanish, right? Right. They don't call in. Oh, Steph, he's wrong about this. He's wrong about this. He doesn't understand that. He doesn't understand this. It's like, hey, I got a call-in show every Sunday. People are welcome to call in, and they never, ever do. Right? Right. Because they know that I'm not afraid of them. And so they don't want to have their own weaknesses exposed. Because they need so desperately to believe that it's strength. And it was not easy for me to overcome bullying. It really was not easy for me to overcome bullying. But it just comes from stepping out of the apartment building and learning another language, mixing with the natives of a higher world. And when you do that, everybody who's stuck back in this dungeon hates you and fears you for getting out. Growth brings attack growth brings attack because growth shatters the irrational absolutes of cowardice of people who refuse to grow growth brings attack you see this all the time even on the forums of people who've outgrown relationships who've tried to fix them who won't stay small, who won't stay bullied, who won't stay subjugated, and they, they outgrow those relationships, people attack. You think of two drunks in a third-year marriage, one of them decides to quit drinking, the other one reacts in fear and hatred. Have you ever seen the movie Goodwill Hunting? Yes. Okay, so in Goodwill Hunting, Matt Damon, of course, is the genius, and Ben Affleck's character is the non-genius and he says to this guy, look, you know, if, 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 if you show up to work Monday morning when you have all this potential, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. Right. I'm doomed to this life. You're not. Right. How often do you think that happens in the real world? Never. <laughs> well, maybe not never, but <laughs> it's really, really, really fucking rare. That people, other pe- people say, look, I'm tragically limited. You have great potential. Let me give you a boost up 
to the next world. Mm. Leave me behind. I can't make it. No. Everybody grabs and pulls you down. Mm. Grabs that and pulls you down because if you stand up, if you climb up, if you get out, then it's not the world anymore for them. It's a prison of their own devising. And they're not adapting to a necessary reality. They're recoiling from a possible growth. Mm -hmm. And people do not like you for that. I think, I think that's relevant to something that really affected me, and it's gone away somewhat. But I used to be like really paranoid. Uh, like I would put like tinfoil on the windows and stuff so people couldn't see in, even if the blinds were messed up or whatever. Like I, I was really paranoid. Like, uh, and that started to heal after, like, I started listening to FDR and stuff like that, and I got away from my family. But I am still afraid of uh, my father. Like, he is still, like, physically bigger than me and stuff like that. Uh, he's, like, it's like, you you, you know, the 10,000-hour theory or whatever about uh, gaining skills. Like, he's had 10,000 hours, I'm sure, of fighting. Well, no, he, he's had significantly more time than I have like fighting. I've not really been in a fight before. Uh, you mean a physical fight? Yes, yes. Like he, what the hell are you talking about a physical fight for? Because I'm afraid of him physically attacking me. No, no, no. The, look, you don't see him anymore, right? That's true, but I'm, I'm somewhat afraid that he will find me, if that makes sense. Dude, he's already found you. He's in your head. Yes, that's true. It's not bumping into him on the street that's limiting you. Right. He's in your head. But you don't know him very well in your head. And that's the dad that you need to get to know. Okay. You don't like that too much. I always can tell when you don't like it because you go, okay. (laughs) But no, because I would ask you, look, I would, you know, you've heard me do role plays with people with their dads, right? Yes. And they they get how their dad's going to react, right? Yes. But you keep your dad mentally at an extreme distance, right? I do. Which is why he shows up unconsciously in paranoia and paralysis and your bullying. I see. You need to, you need to, right? I mean, I keep your friends close, but your Enemies closer. Yeah. So the people who've done you great harm, they're in your head. You need to get to know them. I have learned more about my mother in the past two years than I did in the previous 40 because I've become a parent. And so she's showing up for me in my head. Okay. And I need to not reject how she's showing up in my head. I need to embrace that she's showing up in my head. And I need to get to know every dark and oogie nook and cranny of her personality in my head now that I'm a parent. Because if I don't, she's going to run things under the table. I see. So you need to get to know your dad in your head. Hey, look, once you've conquered your dad in your head, your dad in the world will be far less scary. The world as a whole will be far less scary. Because if you hold your inner dad at arm's length, he shows up in the world as a whole. Mm -hmm. And then you confuse the world for your dad, your bosses for your dad, your girlfriend for your dad. Mm -hmm. Right? When you bring him close and you open him up and you get to know him in your head, the dad in your head then he stays where he is, which is in your head. He doesn't get projected out into the world as a way of getting breathing space that turns into a suffocation chamber. 
but have conversations with the dad in your head. Learn about the dad in your head. Try to understand the dad in your head. That doesn't mean think, oh, poor guy, he was abused, everything's fine. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about study your limitations. Limitations is the dad in your head. If your dad was a bully, if your dad was abusive, then he's an enemy to your growth. He was in the past, and he is now. And we study our enemies. Otherwise, they win. That's why I keep bugging libertarians. Study politicians. Study politicians. Study politicians. Because they are working. And they're winning. And if your life is stalled and you can't break through the ice to the next layer, then in my opinion, your dad is winning. And he's winning because you don't know him well enough in your head. Okay. Now, there are books by John Bradshaw. There are books by Nathaniel Brandon that, that actually have like exercises that you can write down, that you can start to open up this knowledge about what's going on in there. Because he's there, and he speaks, and he moves. And he doesn't want you to outgrow the bullying. Right. And so he's going to project his face onto your bosses and your job interviewers and your girlfriend and your friends and the world so that he stays in control of you. Okay, that makes sense. And that's, I mean, I don't have, there's no quick fixes, but I think that once you've, once you've gotten to know that, you'll be a lot freer in your interactions with other people. Because then if somebody, if somebody bullies you at work, they're just a little bully at work. They're not your dad, the world, the existential reality, existence. It's not everywhere. It's not all pervasive. You're not five again. It's just some dipshit, dipshit bullying you at work. You can see something for what it is without the projection of unprocessed history. Yeah, I'm starting to see some of the ways that I've done that. So, uh, No, 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 no. Not that you've done that, that he's done that. Or, or, I, I mean, mean, I know I'm talking about he and you, but I mean, that's not that didn't just pop into your head for no reason. That was the result of years of this kind of terrorizing. Right, right. Our abusive parents want us to think that they are the world, because if they are the world, then they're adapting to reality. The way that you and I adapt to reality, like we don't jump off a bridge, we go down the stairs because there's gravity, right? So people who are abusive, they want their abuse to become reality. Ah. Like gravity, like sunshine, like you put sunscreen on so you don't get a sunburn. That's right. adapting to reality. They want abusive interactions to be the only possible, only valid human interactions. Anything else is wrong, is ridiculous, is embarrassing, is weak, is stupid, is a sucker's game. They yeah. really need the abuse to be like gravity. Yeah. And denormalizing that and saying, it is not physics, it's just fucked, is tough. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've I've, I've been like uh, attracted for quite a while in looking at like stories about North Korea and stuff. I've been interested in reading about that, and I think like that really resonates what you said. Like, I think it, I think that's why. Like, the, he has like a personality cult and like extremely strict control, so that it seems like it's like it is reality, and that that makes a lot of sense. Right. And I mean, this is how politics and parenting reinforce each other, right? Because if you're some person in North Korea who's growing up in that kind of environment, in a sense, it would be really dangerous to teach your kids freedom. Right. Uh, picked up by the secret police, tortured and killed, right? So then you have to bring your kids up harshly and con in a controlling way, which only just reinforces what goes on. Uh, also, uh, Richard Schultz's Internal Family Systems Therapy is a good book. Uh, he talks a lot about uh, parental voices uh, and alter egos in one's head. Of course, Dr. Mass and, and the Psychohistory site has a lot of that stuff as well. Okay. I think I have access to that, so I'll, I'll take a look at that. Fantastic. All right, and, and let me know how it goes. And I hope that this was um, on point for you. I know it was, it was a tough thing to... Yeah. Yes, I th I th it'll be very helpful. Thank you. All right. Thanks, man. All the best. Uh, thank you. And uh, sorry. All right. Yeah, growth anxiety. Demas has a lot in growth anxiety that's really, really uh, worth, uh, worth looking at. All right. I believe we have someone. Hi, Steph. Hello. Can you hear me all right? Not too well. Um, I'm just going to try take, taking out my mic and see what that does. Uh, can you hear me better? Uh, try again. Can you hear me better now? Uh, that's not too bad, yeah. Okay. Um, I just had a dream. I was wondering if you'd want to analyze. Oh, love to. I haven't done a dream in a while. Let's do it. Okay. Um, I just got a post on the board. Um, I'll read it to you. Uh, can you put the link in the chat window or Skype? Yeah. It's the inner show today, ladies and gentlemen. It's all right. We had the outer show at Libertopia. Okay. So I guess I'll just start reading it. Um, this is a dream I had on October 9th after having a Skype conversation with two board members here where we were exploring particularly difficult subjects um, for at least two of us particularly that of low self-esteem. Um, before I describe the dream, I just want to preface by stating that since there was dreaming within the dream going on, that I'm going to refer to two levels of dream, the first being the dream I'm having, and the second being the dream of my dream self. The dream, level one, began in a room with a door located at the center of one wall. If one were to stand in the doorway facing the room, one could see a window straight across the room at the middle of the far wall. A table was beneath the window. A bed was on either side of the window against the wall. A bed for me was against the wall to the right. Um, and a bed I'm sorry to, to interrupt you, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. Just because this is fairly lengthy and your, um, your sound is not that great, would you mind terribly if I read the dream? No, go ahead. Uh, thanks. It's just because it'll be a little hard for people to hear. Uh, so we'll start again. Uh, the dream level one began in a room with a door located at the center of one wall. If one were to stand in the doorway facing the room, one could see a window straight across the room at the middle of the far wall. The table was beneath the window. 
a bed was on either side of the window against the wall. A bed for me was against the wall to the right, still from the perspective of one looking on from the door. And a bed was on the left for one of my two brothers, who was two years younger than me. There was also all sorts of clothing strewn around the floor of the room. I was in the bed in the beginning of the dream. I was on a cell phone in the beginning of the dream, doing some sort of self-knowledge talking. I finished talking on the phone and then decided to go to sleep. I then start having dreams within the dream. The first of the second layer dreams is one in which I'm having this feeling of being violated and needing to wake up to attend to myself. The feeling was that I was being groped in the crotch. I'm fearful of waking up to see it, but I'm fighting and fighting to wake up, but I can't wake up. And I'm going, oh, I'm being attacked. I'm in danger. At some point, I wake up and my brother is on me and feeling me up. And then I'm fighting him off and pushing him, but he keeps coming back onto me. Eventually, I get him off me. Then he's in my bed and I tell him to get out of my bed and he says no and exposes himself to me. Somehow I get him off the bed. I, I don't know if I knock him out or he just falls back asleep, but he ends up on the other bed unconscious. And then I start digging around in the laundry on the floor trying to find my phone. I find it and grab it and call 911. I get them on the phone, but then I freeze up and struggle a bunch to say what happened. Like I had trouble saying the words that I'd been sexually molested in my sleep. So after that, I must have fallen back asleep in the bed because I have another second level dream here where I was the main character in a Legend of Zelda-like Game Boy game. I was with these people on top of a cliff and they told me something like, show me the beginning or how do you get your skills? So I leapt off the cliff edge and fell into a hole in the top of a cave. In the cave, I noticed the problem that I have a shield, but that I do not yet have a sword. In one area of the cave, some monsters came at me, but I had to run away from them because I did not have the means to take them down. So I run away from them to another room in the, bat, in the cave that has a ton of bats in it, which are massing about this huge boss bat sitting in the center of the room. I attempt to go to the long way around the room. Sorry, I attempt to go the long way around the room to the other of the two openings in the walls of the room. But the bats fire a bunch of lasers at me and kill me before I get across the room. In video game fashion, I am reborn at the entrance of the room. Uh, sorry. And instead go the other shorter way to get to the other opening in the room. Making it through before the bats hit me with any lasers. And this second layer dream ends, and I am back in the bed, in the room, sleeping. I'm back to the feeling of the thing on me and wanting to wake up and get it off me. And having these overwhelming feelings of terror, dread, and disgust, I then have a second layer dream where I am in an emptied out church and have a, ch a chalice filled with what I assume was wine. <coughs> Excuse me. I toss it on the floor violently, staining the carpet. Then... I am overcome by a fear of being caught and punished for this transgression, and so leave. Then I'm back to being awake in the first level dream, but I have been transported away from the room, and I'm now located in this seedy-looking area of some town. And I see these red and blue lights flashing, and I get hope that I'm about to be found, but I can't quite see where the lights are coming from. So I call 911 again, but the guy on the line can't hear me, and thinks I'm a prank caller or something. I tried reading the building signs to tell me where I was, but it was hard. Things were almost shifting, so I couldn't read. So that doesn't go 
anywhere. And then I'm overcome by this fear that, oh no, they're not coming for me and I don't know where I am. I don't really know where I was when I was in the room, but now I really don't know where I am. There were people around also, and I was getting worried about the people, so I start to run. And next, there were a bunch of trains around, and a bunch of confusion goes on where the trains are moving. And I see the red and blue lights still. I get on a train car. Then somehow the whole scene changes, and I'm transported to this sort of wet living cave with pinkish walls. So there are three corridors I can go down, one to the left, one across from me, and one to the right. While a corridor was behind me, which I apparently came from. I'm extremely afraid of the corridor to the left. It's pretty much pitch black down it. The others were comparatively well lit, but this ominous one called to me, and I felt that that's the one. That's the one I have to go through to get out of this. So I started running, plunging, full speed into it. I get this massive fear that grows the deeper I get into it. I get to a certain point where it's no longer a body experience where I'm running into this cave. It's now that I'm plunging bodilessly into deep, dark recesses of my mind. And finally, I approach this image formed out of something like electricity that appears to be the face of myself as a young boy. I feel as I approach, I'm really getting to the core of myself and I'm on the brink of revealing some huge locked secret of my past. But when I reach the image, I wake up. And you then wrote... Uh, after I woke from the dream, I found myself going to YouTube and typing bloodbath into the search bar. Band name came up. A list of songs popped up. You chose the one titled Cry My Name and listened to it. I used to listen to death and black metal a lot a few years ago. As I listened, I felt myself welling up with sadness. and let go sobs and tears at the lines. And when you seek forgiveness, you will see there is no God. Somehow I feel that my selection of this song to listen to after this dream was through my unconscious and relates to the dream somehow. All right. So tell me what you've, uh, what you've thought of. Actually, no, no, sorry. Tell me again a bit about the conversation that happened right before the dream. Um, we, were, um, we were talking about one guy's uh, little self-esteem issues. Um, he's kind of, I guess, got this like um, arrogance that he has, but we were talking about how it like might cover up um, low self-esteem. I'm kind of foggy about what exactly we talked about. I'm sorry, how was he covering up low self-esteem? Um, by like kind of puffing himself up with arrogance. Right. And uh, tell me a little bit about um, your childhood experiences. Like what exactly? Uh, well, um, what was it like? Uh, crappy. <laughs> um, Go on. I guess my parents were really critical, um, and like if say they were punishing me about something, and but say it was something that I didn't do, they would they would like never believe. They would just want to have their way that yeah I did whatever and need to be punished for it. Or their, right. their punishments if I did do something that was like, I don't know, like I ate a cookie or something that I wasn't supposed to. It would just be like way, way out of proportion to whatever I did. And what sort of punishments would you receive? Um, like for something like um, talking back, 
I would get like slapped in the mouth or maybe some kind of like long lecture um, where they're like kind of kind of raging a bit and just out of control with it um, or like sent to my room or not allowed to go outside to play or something for a while. Right. And do you have brothers? Yeah, two. They're both younger than me. Uh, in the dream, are you the same age as you are now, or are you a different age? Same age that I am now. All right, so let's... Um, a room with a door located... Now, the, the room that you're in, does it, uh, is it any room that you've seen in the real world, or is it more just a room that, that is in your dream? No, just a room in a dream. Are there any, um, uh, do you know what time of day it is? Like, is it are the lights on? Is nighttime or is it daytime? Um, I think it was nighttime. And do you remember what there was outside the window? Were there any lights or was it just pitch black? No, I don't, I don't really remember seeing anything outside the window. When you were a child, did you sleep in the same room as one or two of your brothers? Yeah, um... My brother, he's just two years younger than me. We always slept in the same room. And then the youngest brother, he's like eight years younger than me. He, he like always had his own room. Um, actually, he did. Actually, at one time, we were actually all in the same room. And uh, how old were you when that was going on? I was like in my teenage years. And even for a little bit, like after, after I graduated from high school and was still living at home, going to college. That was a pretty small, and, and cramped room. Sorry, when you write to there's all sorts of clothing strewn around the floor of the room. Is that how your floor was when you lived there? I mean, were there clothes on the floor? No. Um, it was always kept pretty neat. Like, I think my mom would go in and, like, clean up stuff that was, like, strewn about. Or maybe maybe it wouldn't even get that way. Like, we would always just have it clean or something. I know when I was younger, I was, I don't know, I was more of, like, neat and like kind of um just sticking to doing kind of what my parents would want me to do and stuff and then my younger brother charlie he was more of the one who would like um just like not get up in the morning for school or something or would be messy all right yeah if you just remember to hold off on names that would be good oh sorry no problem um so tell me a little bit about the adult life of your brother who's two years younger. Um, he had a kid with this like awful girl who's like, I guess, a lot like my mom. And when I first started getting into FDR, I like tried to get him like excited about it and stuff. And I kind of did it for a while. And then, um, Last spring, I actually just, I got this feeling where it was like, I just didn't really want to see him anymore. And I was just like, I got to like test where this is at or whatever. So I kind of uh, just went to him with this more vulnerable kind of way of acting like, man, you know, I'm like, I'm just anxious about seeing you and scared about like, I don't know, hanging out with you or something. And, um, and all this kind of stuff. And 
he just reacted with this like really like oh you just think you're better and everything and all that kind of stuff and just like basically just totally said like i'm siding with our parents and that's that i'm sorry to hear that and do you remember a time with your uh, brother when you were younger that he was i guess less hardened or more vulnerable or more honest or open yeah um when when he was in high school still and i was like living there going to college um he like had this period where he was really rebellious and he'd want to be out drinking with friends or smoking pot or something and he would like after a while he just started like just leaving and just kind of disappearing for a few days and stuff and um yeah and then my parents even got like the cops involved and things and um actually this one time he like um he like ran off and i like chased him and he and i was a runner at the time so there was like no way he was really gonna get away from me or anything so we get into this forest and he just kind of stops and then we're just like at this this stalemate for a while just like um just just i don't know i'm just waiting like trying to see what's going to happen then eventually well actually while we were we were there i was kind of like saying this stuff to him like like what are you doing like i didn't understand like i was so i don't know dissociated or whatever that i didn't even i was like what the what the heck is this what is he doing what is all this stuff about um so i was like maybe talking a little crap to him and um then eventually i just it was cold out and i it was like wet in the forest and my feet were getting cold so i just like ran back to the house and um and then he like went to this grocery store and they saw him there and the cops eventually got him and they like so eventually he was like put in this kind of like institution place for like troubled troubled kids or something and just like exiled from the family and stuff for a while and i was right. just during the, the whole time i was like i maybe saw him twice when he was there and i'm sorry where was he again this this kind of like institution place for troubled kids i guess like one of those boot campy things or um no it was I, I mean i think i was just wondering okay so i think i know it's a place where parents go parents send their kids who are that they consider unmanageable or whatever right yeah like he would he would actually cut his arms a bunch like he's got really bad scars on one arm and he'd wow. like make self-made tattoos um yeah just all kinds so of he's stuff. a pretty wild child to say the least right yeah oh poor kid okay and um how old was he when he had his kid he was i think he was 19. jesus poor fucking kid and uh his it was his girlfriend that he had the kid with yeah and um uh, did they get married i mean how is, is he involved in the parenting how does that how's that work it was out? it was pretty rocky um 
I don't think they're together anymore as far as I know. Um, at least the last that I heard anything. Um, and uh, do you know if your brother's still involved in parenting? Uh, no, I don't know anymore. Um, do you know if he, when you did know him, did you know if he ever took any parenting classes or anything no. like that? No. Right. I don't know if this is true at all, but actually I think what his girlfriend told me at one time was that he like actually let his kid like kind of just sit in this like soiled diaper for like a whole day or something. But I, I don't know how true that is. Um, do you know what, um, do you know what happened to your brother that made him a self cutter and giving himself his own tattoos and all that kind of stuff? I mean, I'm um, born that way, right? And people aren't no, born wanting to hack their own skin, right? Just, um, just kind of maybe a different kind of abuse than what I had or just a different way of responding to the abuse or something. Am I right in assuming that you've not been a self-cutter? Um, after... Um, I like dropped out of college after a while and I was kind of like living with my brother and we were like, we really got into drugs and stuff. And I would kind of like, like say I was smoking pot and like take a bowl that I was using and um, like heat it up and put it on my arm or I'd like take a, take like a spoon where they've, they've got that kind of like flowery design on the end or something. And I'd like um, brand that into my arm or something. So I've got a few, like five or six, uh, brand scars and like maybe two cuts on my arm, but I never got to the level that he went with it. Um, and what about your younger brother? I never really knew him too much. He, hmm. he, He's just really shy and quiet, I guess. He doesn't, um, do you think, think the dream is, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think my bro my littlest brother, um, that my parents, I don't know, kind of like treated him better than they did. Um, me and my oldest younger brother, um, I, because they were like both youngest children. And so I don't know, like maybe they're trying to like make their lives better through their youngest kid or something. I don't know. Right. Well, their lives won't get better by behaving better, except by attempting restitution with the wrongs they've done. But, um, all right. So let's, let's go into your dream unless there's more that you want to add. And of course, I mean, it really needs to be said that I just have huge, huge sympathy for what you all experienced. I mean, that's that's some seriously messed up uh, symptoms, which doesn't mean that you and your brother are messed up. It just means that some bad stuff had to happen, in my opinion, for this to manifest, that level of self-cutting and also the drug use, right? I mean, I don't know if you've seen the bomb of the brain stuff, but drug use is highly correlated with uh, childhood abuse and... Uh, yeah. I'm so sorry. 
like while I was using the drugs, I would be really like, I guess out of touch with things. And since I sure. like, um, last summer I stopped with like all the, the more psychedelic stuff I was doing. And then I just kind of stuck with pot for a while. Yeah. And then, um, and then I stopped with pot finally and just like, I felt like anxious all the time. And so I was definitely masking, masking sure. stuff with that. All right. So, um, do, do, is there more you want to talk about with that? Should we take a look at the dream? Yeah, let's go to the dream. All right. So just looking at the second paragraph, you're on a cell phone doing some sort of self-knowledge talking. That's very important. The first action in a dream, rather than just the landscape, in my opinion, this is all just my opinion, right? There's no science behind any of this. We're just, you know, we're just talking about silly opinions about dreams, right? So this may or may not be true. I just sort of want to put that up front. But the way that I, I start with my own dreams is, okay, the landscape is important because the landscape tells me a time frame. Because dreams, they're about the past, they're about the present, or they're about the future. It's, you know, one of the three, right? This dream would seem to be about the past because it is specifically referencing a time in your life when you were staying in the same bedroom as your brother or brother, brothers, right? Yeah. And, um, and yet it's not the bedroom that you recognize, right? Nope. So, again, the dream to me is telling me uh, that this is your history, but you don't know it. Because if you did know it, it would look exactly like you remembered it, right? Mm, yeah. Now, if if I'm not being clear, just tell me, Steph. You're not. Yeah, being you're clear. clear. I just I I guess I don't okay. see it yet. No, no, that's wait. Don't see what. Um, I guess seeing how what you're saying is like right or whatever. Oh, listen. This is not about right or wrong. This is just just my. This is the way I would approach a dream like this. So, like, if if I have a dream about when I was six. And I, I completely vividly remember my bedroom when I was six. If I have a dream about when I was six and I, I, I rem it's in the bedroom that I was in, then it's about something very specific that happened when I was six. But if I dream about being six and I'm in the same bed that I was in when I was six, but I'm on a space station, right, then it's saying that there's something I don't know about when I was six. Because if I did know it, it would be just... It would be the same environment. There would be nothing surprising in it, right? But the fact that you're in this environment that you were in in the past, but you don't recognize it, means that there's something that you don't know or recognize about your history. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because your dream could completely reproduce. Like if you close your eyes and you picture your bedroom when you were 16 or whatever, you can do that, right? You know, you may not know every detail, but you know what was in your bedroom. So if the dream is giving you the situation, but in a different environment, it's saying, here's something you, you don't know. Now, did you have a cell phone when you were a teenager? Um, no, I didn't get one until after I was an adult. Okay, so the cell phone, I would bet, is a reference to the Skype call. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? Cause it, and it's saying that the Skype call that you had is, is going to reveal to you something about your history that you don't know yet. Because it takes you back in time but puts you in an unfamiliar environment, right? Yeah. Okay. So you finish talking on the phone and then decide to go to sleep. Yeah. 
Now, to, uh, to help me to understand this sentence I had a little trouble with. So you say the first of the second layer of dreams is one in which I'm having this feeling of being violated and needing to wake up to attend to myself. I didn't quite understand that language. I, I just want to make sure it's an unusual way of putting it. Because, you know, it might be like fight off my attacker or get away or something, but wake up to attend to myself. What, what does that mean? I don't know. Just like take care of myself, basically. Um Wake up that's not, death. that's not, I mean, sorry, that's not, um, th there's something that to me is, is a little off about that. Like if I, if I brush my teeth, I'm taking care of myself. If I shower or I go to the gym, I'm taking care of myself. None of those are specific to being attacked, right? Yeah. So help me to understand what you mean when you say that. It's, it's an unusual way to put it, which I think is important. I guess, like, something to do with, like, paying attention. Um, like, I have to be awake and, like, have attention of whatever's going on or something. Like, if I'm sleeping, I'm not paying attention to what's going on or something. Okay, so you need to become sort of alert and aware to your surroundings. Yeah. And you're trying to wake up, but you can't wake up. Did you receive a religious instruction when you were a child? Yeah, I was raised a Catholic. Right. And uh, I'm sorry to ask this this bluntly, but did you have um, uh, a fierce concern or guilt about uh, masturbation when you were young? Yes. Um, like I would do it and I'd be like sitting on the toilet and I'd like have this, I'd be like, I'd have this like, thought of like, I don't know if God is watching me do this or something. And, um, right. Like, am right. I my bad? The Virgin Mary is, is weeping as I flog the bishop. Right, right. I understand. Yeah. Right. Because, I mean, the funny thing is that it's almost like to attend to myself would be a very polite way of talking about masturbation. If that, I mean, I'm just, it's a possibility, right? Because it's, a, it's such a, an odd way to put it. Um, because, because you can't wake up. It's, it, it could be possible, possible that you're talking about uh, that your experience is that if you woke up, you might see that you were groping yourself in the crotch, if that makes any sense. Okay. Um, I guess that could make sense with, like, um, like, I still masturbate to porn and stuff, and I'm like, I'll kind of do these things where I'll try, like, for a while to, like, not. And then, like, I'll just get overcome with this, like, Lust. Yeah, like this like this burning that I just I need to get off or something. Sure. And then I'll just go back to it. Yeah, look, there's there's no doubt that that the pornography is is visually sexually exciting. And I, I talked about this before, but my belief is that uh when we lived in a primitive tribal society, if we saw sex, it would be uh, stimulating to us, and I would imagine there wasn't a lot of privacy in your average Stone Age cave or whatever, so if we saw sex, then we would want to have sex, and that would be sort of biologically programmed into us, that if it's around, we want some, because that's how we replicate our DNA and blah, 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 right? And so to me, I think that that, that human beings are hardwired to, to respond in a sexually charged way to depictions of sexuality. I don't think it's, it's uh, uh, evil or creepy or anything like that. I just think that's how we're wired, and it may be the case that men are wired more that way than women for various reasons to do with number of eggs versus number of sperm and so on. 
so I just sort of wanted to, uh, to, to point that out. And the reason that I try and like get away from it is like, um, with like what you and, uh, Daniel Mackler have said about just like, if you understand what the people have been through to get on your screen, that like, there's no way that you could like stay aroused or whatever. And, um, uh, sorry, that's, yeah, I, I, I sort of understand what you're saying, but, uh, to, to give an analogy that I think is probably true is that if you're starving and you seeing, uh, and you're standing in front of a buffet, even if you know the buffet has been prepared by slaves, your, your mouth is still going to water. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, so I just sort of wanted to, to, to point that out because I certainly think that, uh, guilt about pornography is not uh, a healthy way to approach it. It's like it's like the new Catholicism. I, I think it's it's more complex and it's more challenging. Uh, and there's much more uh, guilt does not provide self knowledge, right? Guilt just weighs you down. And uh, I think that to to continue to pursue self knowledge is is the worthwhile goal rather than just dropping this big heavy log called guilt on it and thinking that you solved something. So, all right, so. Uh, anyway, I just sort of wanted to to point that out. But uh, so then, so you say at some point I wake up and my brother is on me and and feeling me up. Now, do you sort of mean that he's groping your genitals uh, through your pajamas or something like that? I, I actually don't know, like um, like how it how it was or whatever. Like if it was like if we were naked or anything like that. Um, just that that's what was happening. Right, right. Uh, generally. So then you you uh, he, he, you then finally get him off your bed and he, he exposes his, his genitals to you, right? Yeah. And then you call 911, but you can't, you can't say anything, right? Yeah. Now, do you know the statistics uh, of, of sexual abuse for, uh, for kids? Just the rough... No, I seem to remember you said like something like one in 10 for boys or something one time. Yeah, I mean, this is what I've heard. Again, I don't know the degree to which it's all scientifically verified, but I, it seems to be fairly consistent that it's one in five for girls and one in 10 for men. And what is deeply shocking about that is that that is not the major topic of conversation in the world. I mean, I, I can't imagine a more important topic. Can, can you imagine, imagine this? Imagine this. Imagine if one in five women in the workforce had been raped at work. Wow. I imagine what would happen to the world if that were revealed. There would be no other topic of conversation. You would hear about nothing else. People would be marching in the streets. They would be up in arms. They would be burning effigies. They would be rioting. I mean, Jesus. Clarence Thomas makes a joke to Anita Hill about a pubic hair in a can of Coke, and everybody goes insane. If one in five workers were raped on the job who were women, and one in ten men were raped on the job. Now, I know that childhood sexual molestation does not only mean rape, so I, I, that's, that's an extreme way of putting it, but you can see how insane our society is that that is not a huge topic, but it's something that you kind of have to look to find. 
And you never hear this on the news. You never hear it in mainstream shows. 60 Minutes is too busy following around the victims of abuse as they go blow people up in Afghanistan and wet dreaming all over them to actually deal with the real issues in society. Childhood sexual abuse is staggering. We don't like what it says about our society. We don't like what it says about our contemporaries. We don't like what it says about the adults around us. It's this massive conspiracy of silence. Because there is something deeply fucking wrong with a culture that molests 20% of its girls and 10% of its boys. There is something so deeply messed up. And not just about the people who are doing the molestation, but the people who allow it to happen. And the people who are silent about it happening. That is the core evils of culture, of lies. If it were happening to adults, that's what I always think about. If it were happening to adults, what if a boss didn't like the report that his female employee wrote for him And in the middle of a board meeting, he pulled her down on his knee, ripped up her dress, ripped off her panties, and spanked her. Can you imagine what would happen to this man if he did that to an adult? But if it happens to children, it's called discipline. If it happens to an adult who is far, far more independent than a child is, that would be criminal behavior. So I'm simply pointing that out to say that it is not outside the statistical bounds of possibility that what you're dreaming about is real. I mean, I don't know if it is or if it isn't. If it was one in a million, we'd say, okay, it's a metaphor, right? If it's one in ten, and I say that the likelihood goes up even higher than that, because that's one in ten in average. Right? You already come from a dysfunctional home. That raises the odds. Because the one in ten includes non-dysfunctional homes, or at least far less dysfunctional homes. If you add to that The reality that your brother has self-mutilation and drug addiction, promiscuity, a lack of capacity to process the effects of his actions, i.e. getting a girl pregnant when he's 19. This all looks pretty fucking grim in terms of his adverse childhood experience score, his ACE score. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. Yeah. Yeah. So according to those symptoms, right? Some seriously bad shit happened to this guy as a kid. Yeah. And so I would not immediately discount this as metaphorical. I I don't know. I don't know. Obviously, I don't think you know. Your brother may know. I don't know if you can ask him or not. Might be worthwhile to ask him if you can and say, look, I I had this dream. 
Did this ever happen to you? And then you, you call 911 and you can't talk about it, right? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, think of all of these fucking priests who molest these children. This goes on for decades. Do you think the parents don't notice that there's a change in the children? Do you think that there's just not this general awareness? You know, people, they've, they've done studies, and Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in Blink. They've done studies where they play 15 seconds of a garbled professor's voice to people. They don't even know what he's saying. It's only 15 seconds. And they can tell whether he's a good or bad professor just based on that. They can tell if they just play 10 or 15 seconds of a garbled doctor's voice. They can, people can predict how often he's going to be sued for malpractice just based on that. People can process things so incredibly quickly and incredibly deeply. And the unconscious has been fairly, fairly well established to have 7,000 times the processing power of the conscious mind. And little, little children can tell the levels of racism within their parents just by looking at a few seconds of body language when that parent is exposed to a picture of somebody from another race. 90 to 95% of communication is nonverbal. Everything is going on in the unconscious. Do you think people don't know? Of course they know. Of course they know. So the fact that you want to call 911 or 911 and you can't talk about it, I think that accords fairly well with the evidence. Yeah, like one time when I was younger, I was sleeping over at a, a best friend at the time's place. And like earlier, he had told me how um, like he was gay. And he had told me that like one way that like gay people will, um, I don't know, like try and figure out if someone else is gay is to like kind of grope them or something and like see where right. it goes. And so like he kind of did that while we were like sleeping and like he like slowly crept his hand like across my body closer to my crotch and then I just um like when he got like right almost there I like couldn't stand the um the uncomfortableness anymore and then I just like sh like moved like to signify that I was awake or something and didn't want him to do it right and then he then he stopped and I guess we went to sleep so but like in that moment I couldn't just be like hey w what the fuck's going on here like I was scared to even like assert my preference that he not do this. Right. And the fact that you felt uncomfortable asserting sexual boundaries may also be important. Yeah. All right. So let's, um, again, there's no answer to this other than I think you just need to think about it. And if you can talk to your brother or any other family member about any family history of this kind of stuff or anybody who knows anything, again, the odds of getting the truth are not very high, but it may be worth, you may, you may get a lot just from asking the question. Um, so then I, I've never played Zelda and I don't have a Game Boy, but I think I sort of under, it's like a Dungeons and Dragons cartoon game, right? Yeah, something like that. Show me the beginning. Hmm, okay, that's interesting. 
So people say, how do you get your skills? So they're saying, show me how good you are at this video game. Is that right? Um, something like that. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what they meant by it. But you're trying to show them something, right? Because you, you leap off the cliff and fall into a hole, right? Yeah. So you have a shield, do not yet have a sword. Shield, but do not yet have a sword. The th look, this, this is just what comes into my mind, right? So this is, again, nothing, nothing about this is true. This is uh, just what comes into my mind. In my mind, having a shield but not a sword is like being a victim of child abuse. You can do stuff to protect yourself, but counterattack, so to speak, is not possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because um, you say the monsters come, but you don't. You have to run away from them because you don't have the means to take them down, right? And that, to me, is being a kid who's dependent, and and you're in a situation of of abuse or whatever. You can do some stuff to protect yourself, but you can't fight back. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I kind of feel that I have going on right now is like now that I've kind of exposed more of this stuff, I just have these shields that are, <laughs> that don't really work anymore, but I don't have right. a sword so, yet. Somebody's just pointed out, sorry, somebody has just pointed out in the chat room, you start off as a child in Zelda, if that's of any importance. Yeah. Um, what are your associations with bats? Um, None that I know of. Because the interesting thing is that a bat is also, if you, I mean, the unconscious uses language in many ways, and a bat is almost like a weapon, right? It's 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 something that is it's both attacking you, but it's also another word for what you lack, which is a weapon or a sword, right? Like a baseball yeah. bat. Yeah. Just sort of noticing that. Bats that fire lasers. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like something out of uh, Austin Powers, you know, sharks with laser beams. Bats with freaking lasers, right? Um, and this is the kind of thing where you say in video game fashion, you're reborn, right? Yeah. So, and, and the fact that you're going into, uh, 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 down a hole into a cave, uh, to me, this is about introspection. This is about knowing yourself. Uh, a cave, to me, is a metaphor for the, the inner world. You know, because it's like the it's like, like your brain is in a cave, and the cave is called the skull, right? Yeah, right. And and uh, uh, you know what's interesting is you fall in a hole into your brain or into your skull, and this came after a conversation, right? Now in conversations, you speak using a hole called your mouth, and you hear using a hole called your ears, right? So the fact that you fall through a hole into your mind is, I think, fitting. Because it's conversation that gets us to self-knowledge, conversation with ourselves, conversation with others. And the reason that I say it's not the real world, but rather your mind, is because when you die, you get reborn, right? Yeah. So it's clearly not the real world. So it's like a dream about what's going on in your mind, which is really kind of trippy. I mean, we're definitely doing some sort of Leonardo DiCaprio movie here, right? But uh, – but I think that's interesting. And of course, it's, we also know it's not the world because your unconscious is perfectly aware that bats don't fire lasers, right? Yeah. So I think, what it's, I think what your unconscious is saying here is, look, introspection will not get you killed. It may feel like you're dying, but you won't die. Introspection is different from what happened in the real world. Whoa. <laughs> wow. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's cool. Like... <laughs> Like you know how, how in movies, fear, kind of. Sorry, you, you know how, sorry, you know how in movies, like 
uh, Inception and The Matrix, they always have this problem, which is like if it's just a dream, there's nothing at stake, right? Yeah. Like if you get killed in the dream or you get killed in the video game, everybody knows you don't die in real life. If you, if you dream that you're dying, you don't die in real life, right? So they always have this problem in movies where they are using dream states, which is, well, how is it real? And so what they do in The Matrix is they say, well, if you get shot in the dream and die, then you dry, die in real life, right? And same thing with Inception, right? Your body thinks that you're dead and so it's, it, it dies, right? But the, the reality is that confronting inner fears only feels like the outside world, but it's completely not. I mean, if I am looking at a picture of a lion running at me, I may feel like a video, I may feel that it's real. But it's not real. <laughs> There's no chance that the, that the movie of the lion is going to eat me. So I'm merely experiencing the emotions. But there are no physiological, direct, violent consequences to those emotions, right? Like if you look at a picture of somebody who harmed you in the past, you may feel you know, fear or anger or disgust or hatred or whatever, but there's no chance that that picture is going to come to life and do the same thing to you again, right? Yeah. Like introspection can't get you killed. It just feels that way, right? Sometimes. Yeah, that makes sense to me because like I do, I do have like a fear of like certain areas or something with introspection. And that makes perfect sense, because if you didn't have those fears, right? Like, I mean, uh, to tell you sort of a, a, like a funny little story, like, uh, when I was working up north for this mining company, we, we used to, a friend of mine and I, we worked up there, we were in the bush for months at a time, and we would take the snowmobile and we would drive these huge drills around, we'd drill down to get the core samples from right above the bedrock and all this, and it was fun, exciting, exhausting work, and and uh, he was driving the motor. He was sorry. He was driving the snowmobile one day, and I was sitting on the back with all the drill bits, and I was looking up at the sky. And, and we must have been on this thing for like forty-five minutes. He was driving along. He was driving along, and I just started for funsies. I just started to mess around with my perspective because you know I was a little bored. It was just you know just driving through the snowy woods, and uh, it was a beautiful blue sky day, and. I sort of messed around with my perspective and I started to think, well, what if, what if we were actually driving along the underside of some world and these weren't tree branches, these were, these were tree roots that were coming down from the bottom of the world and we were actually upside down. And I started to freak myself out a little bit. I, re I really did because it felt like I'm going to fall because I was, I, I'm not looking up, I'm looking down and these are tree roots, not tree branches. And I was doing okay. It was kind of fun to mess around with my perspective that way. I was doing okay. And then we drove onto a lake, a frozen lake, and all the trees vanished. And I literally fell, felt like we were about to fall into the sky. And I, I, see, I gripped, I gripped the, 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 the bars, the drill bits or the drill rods. I gripped them so hard, I cramped my hands. I think I broke a nail. Because I, I genuinely felt that I was about to fall into the sky. I used to do this a little bit when I was younger. You know, you look up at a cloudy sky and you see stars. I'd sort of think about like I was on the underside of a space station and I was looking down and seeing cities on the earth, not looking up and seeing stars in the sky. Now, of course, I wasn't about to fall, but it genuinely had messed up with my perspective so much that I genuinely felt that I was about to fall right off 
the bottom of the world into the sky <laughs> forever. Uh, and so, uh, but that's sort of like introspection, right? You, it feels like it, but it's not, it's not real. And that's what it means to confront your fears. And that's what they do with progressive exposure, right? So if you're afraid of spiders, then you look at spider pictures of spiders and, you know, you just sort of go slowly to progress to one point where you're actually handling spiders. But you don't handle a black widow, right? Because <laughs> a black widow can bite you and kill you. you. You handle harmless spiders so that you recognize that your fear is not empirical, if that makes sense. Did I completely lose you? Or does that, <laughs> does that no, make that, that all makes sense. All right. All right. Okay. So, uh, so I think that's what your unconscious is telling you. Look, there are bats with lasers. There's some scary shit in your head, but it's not real. It's not real in the way that it was. The fears were real in the past, but confronting them now won't get you killed. Does that sort of make any sense? Yeah. Um, so after you wake up from that second dream within a dream, you say, then I'm overcome by a fear of being caught and punished for this transgression. This is because you're in an emptied out church. You have a chalice filled with what I assume was wine and you toss it on the floor violently staining the carpet. Now, uh, if you're Catholic, of course, it's not wine, is it? According to the superstition, right? No. It's blood, right? And it's no more real than the bats and lasers in the video game, right? Yeah. And so here, I think your dream is telling you, your unconscious is telling you that you are not afraid of the world, but the people in it. You're not afraid of a lion. You're afraid of people putting you in the lion cage. Because you say very clearly, I'm overcome by a fear of being caught and punished for this, quote, transgression, right? So you spill some wine, and you're not afraid of God. You're not afraid of going to hell. You're not afraid of divine punishment or retribution or the archangel Gabriel coming down and bitch-slapping you all over the cathedral. You're afraid of being caught and punished by people, I would assume. Is that right? Yeah. So... I mean, I've always said God is the fear of other people, right? People say they believe in God because they're just afraid of being punished if they admit that they don't believe in all this nonsense, right? So this is, I think, saying that the source of your anxiety and your fear is the fear of punishment for things that you don't believe in. Because this is not internalized. You don't say to yourself, I have done something wrong by my own standards of value. I have transgressed my own virtues. You say, shit, I'm going to get caught and punished. That's not a moral argument. That's just a consequences argument, right? Yeah. You know, like if you, um, if every time a rat goes left in a maze, you hit it with a taser, it's not going to go left anymore, right? But that's not, that's not because the, the rat says it's immoral to go left. It's like, shit, left means taser, right? So it's saying that the values that you had as a child were inflicted and enforced. They weren't moral, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. 
I mean, there was never any empirical evidence provided to you for Jesus and God and the angels and Mary and that masturbation is bad. And like, there was never any of this was ever given to you, right? I mean, it's all just asserted through fear of punishment, whether that punishment is eternity in hell or rejection and attack by the crazy culty social circle called religiosity. It's not a moral argument. It's just an argument from punishment and bribery through heaven, right? All right, so let's see if we can uh, finish up just as we uh, end up the show. Bonamay, is, uh, how are you doing with this with this conversation? Is this useful? Yeah, it's really useful. Um, like, I just like myself, I just didn't want to look at the at the dream and like think about it. Well, that's not entirely true because you posted it and called in, so you kind of did, well, right? But I mean, like, you want to, but maybe other people in your head don't, right? Yeah. All right, so you're awake in the first level dream, and that's so you're no longer in the room. You're now located in the seedy-looking area of some town. Is it daytime or nighttime? Um, maybe in between. Like sort of dusk or dusk, I assume, right? Yeah, it wasn't like in between night and day. It would have been between uh, day and night. So these red and blue lights flashing, that's police, right? Yeah. And I get and you get hope that you're about to be found, but you can't quite see where the lights are coming from. And when you say found, you mean, are you being found because you stained the carpet with the blood of buddy Jesus, or is it something else? Oh, and I didn't think about that. Um, I was thinking in the dream about like found and um, like, I guess helped um, from this earlier call that I had made about the, the molestation. Oh, right, right. Okay. So, so you want to be found here because you think the cops are going to come and question you about the molestation, right? Yeah. All right. So you call 911, but the guy can't hear you. I tried reading the building signs to tell them where I was, but it was hard. What was hard about it? They were blurry or they were written in um, a strange language? or that They were blurry, but also I don't know how to explain the shifting, but it was like, I don't know, it was just weird. Like, I don't know how to explain it. Are you an anarchist? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a good question. Not everyone who calls in is, right? I just want to make sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because an anarchist would not be particularly surprised if a government agency did not help, right? Yeah, true. But this is, again, I think we're talking about a time when you were when you were younger, right? So, yeah, okay, this is interesting. Look at this juxtaposition, right? So in this juxtaposition, you fear immediate punishment from authority when you spill some crappy wine on a carpet, right? But yep. then when you really need help from authority, which is the two times you call 911, you don't get help. Yeah. Now, this, this I'm quite passionate about, so give me just, just two seconds to talk about this, because, because this is something that really pissed me off when I was a kid, that any time I did something that the adults disagreed with, I'd just get punished, right? I'd get caned in boarding school, I'd get uh, spanked or beaten up at home, I would get uh, punished in, in school, we'd get detentions, we would get you know, all of these, these crazy things. If you did anything that the adults found displeasing or threatening, they'd just, just punish the shit out of you. On the other hand, if you ever needed the adults to do something moral and virtuous for you, well, no fucking help, right? I remember hiking in the woods with a friend of mine once when I was about, I don't know, 12 or 13 or whatever. 
And some kids, the older kids, they were sort of 17 or 18. They, they trapped us and they threatened us. They, they, uh, uh, they hit my friend. And, uh, and I said to the guy back when I was young and foolish, I said, uh, 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 something like, I just said, why don't you pick on someone your own size? Because it was really, my friend was like 12 and this guy was like 17 and a giant, right? And he hit my friend and then he punched me in the stomach. And they must have kept us there for, I don't know, it's hard to say, an hour or two or whatever, right? And we were terrified. And when we came back at school on Monday, one of the guys passed me in the hallways because they went to the same school and he sort of laughed at me and said, hey, how was your weekend? You know, because they knew that they'd scared the crap out of us before letting us go. And I absolutely knew for sure that there was no way to go to adults for help. No way to go to adults for help. That all was going to happen was that something would happen which would make my situation worse. In other words, that adults were fairly, perfectly happy to pour all the shit slide of punishment on me when I did something wrong, but they would do nothing to help or protect me. And I think a lot of people who go through bullying experience the same thing. Nothing to help or protect me. If I actually needed some help from authority, not authority punishing me for stupid and consequential shit that didn't matter, like climbing over the wrong wall in boarding school got me caned. Didn't matter. I was perfectly able to climb over that wall. It's just that wasn't allowed. Right? So authority was just this big punishment machine. But the moment you needed something from authority, suddenly they were nowhere to be found in terms of helpfulness. And that's one of the things I think that made me quite skeptical about authority when I was younger. Right? So you're afraid of being punished for something that's not even wrong. But then when you actually need help to deal with molestation, there's nobody around, right? Yeah. They think they're a prank caller. They won't re reply and so on, right? And you say there's also people around you, which you who you decide not to tell about the molestation dream or the molestation experience, I guess it would be for you in this case, right? Because you didn't know that it was a dream in the dream, right? Yeah. And now you say there are people around. I was getting worried about the people, so I start to run. Uh, what were you getting worried about with the people? That they were like coming after me or something. Okay. Okay. Right. So if you try to get help, then people will come after you. Look, the reality is, and again, I use the word conspiracy here very loosely, but uh, there, there, there is a huge conspiracy of people who mistreat children in this world. A huge conspiracy, which is why people don't like to confront abusive parents. The huge conspiracy of people who, who abuse children. I don't just mean child molesters, but to lots of other people. A huge conspiracy of silence. So when you actually start trying to talk about child abuse or molestation or whatever in the dream, you feel that everyone's going to start coming after you. And, and this is the reality of the supposedly moral world that we live in, which is that the victims get blamed, right? It's the whistleblowers who get thrown in jail. And so you, victim, in your dream of a molestation, you're trying to call for help. And that brings people against you. You start to become frightened of them. This is not unknown to me as well. Right? That if you try to help children, people know likey, right? Because there's just so many of them who do wrong by children. All right, so... Um, the whole scene changes. You're transported to sort of wet living cave with pinkish walls. Womb or brain? Let's find out. 
So there are three corridors I can go down, one to the left, one across from me, one to the right. The corridor was behind me, which apparently came from. Pitch black down it. This ominous one calls me, felt that that's the one. Well, this is very clear, right? So this is you going into your own mind, right? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> a wet, li wet living cave with pinkish walls, that's your brain, right? Yeah. Are you left-handed by chance? No. Yeah, so it's no longer you, you're going into the deep, dark recesses of my mind. Now, I, I will sort of end with this uh, comment and then, of course, ask if you have, uh, have any questions, right? Okay. I would first of all propose that it is not the deep, dark recesses of your own mind that you're going into, but you are actually trying to empathize with an abuser you have internalized. A good man, and by that I don't mean a perfect man, but a good man has nothing to fear from introspection. I don't fear introspection, and that doesn't mean that I don't ever get afraid when I introspect. I certainly do. But I don't fear introspection because I have not done wrong to children. Or stood by when wrong is being done to children, whenever I've had the capacity to act. So my conscience is clear. And I've done a lot of work, and I continue to do a lot of work to keep my conscience clear. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. Lord knows. The, perfection, the perfect is the enemy of the good, right? Perfection is the enemy of virtue. But am I right in assuming that you do not have a lot of bad actions on your conscience? Um, not a lot, but like I was the oldest, and so I had some not good things that I would do to my brothers. Um, so like there's, there's a fair amount. Um, like when my youngest brother was um, like a toddler or something, um, I don't know, do you know those trolls that like have the pointy hair on top of their heads? Um, uh, the little pencil ones? Um, yeah, but they also With have the pink, big, hair, pink hair, right? Yeah, but they also have yeah, like bigger yeah. doll type ones too. Right. And right. so we had some of them around the house. And so they would just scare the crap out of my little brother. So, um, my other brother and me would like, we'd hold it in front of his face and like freak him out. Um, uh, and there's just other things too that we do. Um, in like playing video games with my, my oldest younger brother, like we'd play this game where it was like a one player game and there was like this kind of minor character that you could play, but the game would focus on the main character and my brother would either, I'd like, he'd have to play the secondary character or he'd have to play like the non-player characters. So, I don't know, just treat Okay, but we're, we're not exactly we're not talking, talking like, you know, savage kinds of abuse or anything like that, right? Uh, no, no. So, so then my, you know, my question would be, uh, if... If your conscience is relatively clear, right? I'm not saying that we, 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 nobody's perfect, but if your conscience is relatively clear, 
like there's no such thing as perfect health. There's always some part of you that's got some <laughs> minor problem, even if you don't know it, right? But if your conscience is relatively clear, then what is this black hole that you're falling down into? Right? Because um, <laughs> the brain can be thought of as a series of tubes, <laughs> much like the internet. But I think of the brain sort of like, um, let's use a religious reference since that's familiar to you, right? So you know the organs in the backs of churches. They've got these, these, these big triangles of, of organs and they have these big vertical pipes with these flutes in them, right? They're sort of bronze or they can be silver or whatever. You know those kinds of pipes, right? Yeah. Well, this is how I view the mind, that I have a whole series of pipes within me, and the aggregation of them all is my entire identity, but a lot of the pipes are people that I've internalized for various reasons. I think everybody we have any kind of interaction with, we internalize. Uh, this is why it's very important to manage who you spend time with, because everybody gets transplanted inwards. Everybody beams into the mothership. Everybody beams into the mothership who's around, which is why it's very important to... Um, uh, to to manage who you're with, right? It's like uh, when I'm at the library, uh, I don't touch the kids with the snotty nose. I don't touch the kids in general, but I don't touch the toys they played with. I make sure that I wash my hands because I don't want to spread a cold. I even if I've already had it and don't get it, my daughter hasn't and will. So these vertical pipes in the mind, when you're falling down a black hole, it may not be you. It may be somebody else that you're falling down, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, I guess that freaks me out. Go on. Like, like sometimes the things that my parents have done to me, like in the middle of the night, because my brother and I were talking when we were supposed to, supposed to be going to sleep. They'd like have us come out and stand in the corner for like an hour or two. And like recently I tried doing that myself for 45 minutes and it was just awful. just like a torture. And I was, and me why would they as, do that as, as an adult. Is it because yeah, you guys weren't, sorry, is it because you guys weren't going to sleep when you should have been going to sleep? Yeah. And like, so I try to wrap my mind around just like what kind of person would, do that to a kid and I'm, I'm just trying to imagine myself doing that I was I just couldn't do it it was like I just got all weird feeling and like disgusted and I just didn't right, want to go to that well you know I hate to say it but I think it's I mean I think it's an important thing to examine it's just it's, I mean this is the theme it's the same thing that the last guy I was talking about with regards to his dad right my idiot amateur opinion is that and this is not just my opinion. You can read this in Jung and, and Freud and other people, that you have to explore the dark side. Now, people say that every human being has a dark side. I think that's bullshit. That's like saying everybody has cancer. No, <laughs> not every human being has a dark side. But the problem is the dark sides we are exposed to are infectious. Right? So we have no choice. If I'm tortured, the torturer passes into my mind and stays, takes up residence. Everybody is a squatter in our minds. Everybody. We adapt, we internalize, we replicate. We get alter egos. I don't think that's going to be the case in the future, but I do notice that this is the case even with my daughter. 
who at the age of one year was reaching for something and told herself no. In other words, she internalized, like reaching something that she shouldn't have and, and told herself no, and then took her hand back. Like, so she'd internalized me saying, no, please don't do that. And so she told herself that. So she internalized me without me even saying so. Well, like she actually spoke the word? Yeah. No. And then, and then, so she was being me telling herself no, and then she took her hand back. And that's good. I think, I think that's healthy. There are some restrictions on her behavior, obviously. I'd rather she internalize. And but she internalizes good things too, right? So when she successfully does something, she'll jump up and down, clap her hands, and say, good job, Ibiya. Nice. <laughs> Which is exactly what Christina and I do. Yay, good job. <laughs> right? She'll cheer herself. I think that's great. I want her to have an entire cheering section of daddies in a tutu jumping up and down. <laughs> Sorry for that mental image, but hey, trauma continues. <laughs> so the black hole that you're going down, we tend to, in, like, one of the things that happens to us when we're victimized as children is we tend to think that everything is us. We tend to internalize everything. But I think it's really, really important to break apart that which is us and that which is inflicted on us. So if some guy stabs me in the side, I, I have a wound, but the wound is not mine. The wound belongs to the guy who stabbed me. I have to deal with the wound, I have to live with the wound, I have to work with the wound, but the wound is not mine. I didn't stab myself. And it's more true of mental wounds than it is physical wounds. My mother owns my cortisol levels. They're her doing. I have to live with them, I have to manage with them, I have to Make sure that I, you know, keep them. But the stress levels, the the things that thing that these are things that were inflicted upon me. I don't own them, in that the, I mean I have responsibility for them now as an adult. Right? If some if some guy breaks my leg with a baseball bat, I have to go to rehab to get it strong again. But it's not like I broke my own leg. I don't own that injury. I'm responsible for taking care of it. I don't own it. And the things that were done to you, you don't own them. They're in you. You have to deal with them. But they're not yours. So the black holes that you're falling down, I wouldn't personalize them like you have this big, massive dark side or whatever. Maybe it's true. I don't know. I don't know you. But I wouldn't start with that. I would start with externalizing. Right, so one of the things that gets abused children's wires crossed is we internalize what we should externalize and we externalize what we should internalize. That's how the wires get crossed and this is how so many people never escape the cycle of abuse. Right, so we internalize the dark side of the people who abused us. Like we have a dark side. We, you, you, my mind is the black holes and bottomless pits and so on. No, 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 that comes from outside. And then we externalize what we should internalize. We project out into the world, as we were, as we were talking about with the guy whose father was a bully, we, we project out into the world that stuff which is actually internal, which is people within our own minds. We then try and project that out onto the world just to get them away from us and get some relief for a moment. But I would not assume that you have a big black hole 
that is your doing and your making and your personality alone. It may be something that's just transplanted in you from somebody else who genuinely has a black hole in their own minds of, of, of guilt and self-hatred and shame and rage and blah, 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 blah. That's where I'd look first, not in just you, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that does. Um, one of the things that I've had is this, like, I don't know, thinking of, like, I'll question if I'm, like, a sociopath or psychopath or a narcissist or something. Um, like, I'll think I have this bad side. Sure. So it totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would not look there first. I wrote in, a, in my therapy journal, I still remember it, gosh, more than a decade later. I wrote, I mean, it's mildly graphic, but I wrote, I fell out of the hole of my mother, which was a reference to me being born. I fell out of the hole of my mother, and then I fell into the hole of my mother, which was her emptiness. And so I understand what that is, but that's not something that's innate to me, that is native to me. That's just something I had to internalize to survive. I'll, I'll just leave you with one metaphor and then, then we'll stop if that works. Uh, and I used this in my recent speech. Uh, in, in law, and I think it's a good law, if, uh, if I go into a convenience store and I pretend to have a gun in my pocket and I say to the guy behind the cashier, uh, the cashier, I say, give me all the money. And he pulls out a gun and tries to shoot me. And I dodge and the gun bounces off a pipe and then a paint can and then kills some innocent bystander. He pulled the trigger. He pointed the gun. He pulled the trigger. Does he get charged with manslaughter? No. No. Who gets charged with manslaughter? You would. Yeah. Even though I didn't even have a gun. I didn't have any bullets. I didn't pull a trigger. I didn't pull out a gun. I didn't point a gun. I am responsible for the murder because I set the events in motion that resulted in the murder. So the person who is reacting to the aggression is not morally responsible for the result. The child is not morally responsible for what happens as a result of trying to deal with aggression on the part of a parent or other caregiver. That's what I mean when we say we don't own it. I don't own it. It was done to me. I don't own it. It's not my moral responsibility. It is my moral responsibility to not reproduce it. Right? It's not my moral responsibility that all this shit was done to me as a kid and that everybody stood by and cheered or looked away or pretended that nothing happened. That's their moral responsibility. I won't take a shred of it. That's their shit to deal with. And they can try and project that into me if they want, but it's just not mine. And that's what I would focus on, that you having to stand in a corner for an hour or two. I think that's called a stress position torture in Guantanamo Bay, particularly so for a child. You had to survive that, and it has consequences for you. But that is not your responsibility. That is 150% your parents doing. That black hole is their conscience. 
not your soul. So I wouldn't say to yourself, I might be a sociopath, I might be a psychopath, I might be any of these things. It's not where I would look first. Because that's not where the evidence points. You didn't force your brothers to stand in a corner for two hours, did you? No. Right. So we deal with the facts. We deal with the evidence. We don't deal with the possibilities. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. What a horrible thing to have to go through. Yeah, when my daughter won't horrible. go to bed. Yeah, when my daughter won't go to bed at night, when she's crying in her crib or she's upset or she's awake, we go and get her. And we cuddle with her and we ask her if there's anything we can do and we give her some more milk if she's hungry or we change her diaper or we'll watch Toy Story or we'll, we'll make her feel better. I could stand in a goddamn corner for an hour. That's crazy. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. And I'm so sorry. But whatever happened to your brother to turn him that way? Thanks for saying I'm so that. Sorry. Sorry. I'm so sorry that your unconscious is having to paint these stories, but... This is not a darkness that you have to fear is coming from you. And uh, I hope that you will continue with the introspection. And uh, I hope that this, I hope this has been helpful. Dream analyses are, they're tricky and there's nothing, you know, particularly true about them, but I think that there's some, some useful stuff in what we talked about. Yeah, I think you were pretty spot on with all of it. <laughs> so I'm glad definitely helpful fantastic all right well i should probably get back to being a good parent rather than talking about good parenting <laughs> so uh thanks everybody so much for all of your support and to the two callers today i really appreciate that i know they were long calls but i really appreciate that uh, uh that occurring so uh, have yourselves a great great week and i will talk to you soon